One of the most sobering statements in all of the Bible is proclaimed by the Lord Jesus himself when he says in Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. That's sobering. That's hard truth. What is the will of the Father? Well, Jesus says in John 6, verse 40, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, what does this mean? It means that it's possible to call Jesus Lord, Lord. And as Matthew 7 goes on to say, to even do religious things, to have religious experiences, to be with religious people and still not have actually looked on the Son of God for life. That that's possible. This is ultimately a person who was somewhat convinced about Christ, somewhat drawn to Christ, somewhat aware of a sin problem, somewhat familiar with Christ, and certainly somewhat familiar with the church. It's probably a person who's taken communion, has served in the church, has fellowshiped with the saints, maybe even has been baptized, has listened to sermons, perhaps even points back to a particular spiritual experience or feeling or emotion, maybe even enjoys the songs of the church, and maybe even in some traditions have gone through some sort of catechism or training to learn the basics of the faith, and maybe even has a fascination for the Word of God and a fascination with theology, but still isn't actually regenerate, isn't actually saved. But the Lord Jesus gave a very simple litmus test, one test, Not a test for somebody to obtain salvation, but a test to see if they are in fact in Christ, if they're in fact regenerate, if they're in fact new creations. And here's the test, John 14, 15. If you love me, you will obey my commandments. You will keep my commands. It's very simple. Now, obviously, Jesus isn't speaking of sinless perfection. He's not speaking of some sort of completed sanctification in which a believer no longer sins. But there's a yearning, there's a heart attitude, there's a deepening desire to humbly submit more and more to the Lord and do all that he asks of us in his word. And this is a drum that I beat regularly at Grace Bible Church. I I do that for my own sanctification. I do it for yours Because it's a regular occurrence in the church of Jesus Christ that professing believers say, I want to obey the Lord, and then they won't do it when actually called to do so. They won't submit to Scripture in a certain particular way. But it's only in the full submission to Christ that the person's faith is tested, is shown to be genuine, sincere, and authentic. And I found that thought so compelling as I studied our text for tonight, Isaiah 53, 10 through 12. Because this text presents so many convincing proofs, so many persuasive reasons to fully submit to Christ. And I want to get back to that in a moment. But first, we need to kind of ascend. We need to go up in altitude and see the bigger picture of which our text is a small part tonight. And we have been, since Isaiah 49, looking broadly at God's plan for Israel and the nations. And then we've come to Isaiah 52.13 through 53.12 and we've slowed down somewhat and we're spending four messages in this text to show us how God is going to redeem Israel, how God is going to redeem the nations. And that redemption will come through the servant of God as presented here in Isaiah 53. And since this is our last message in this text, I want to really remind you of the uniqueness of these 15 verses. We've noticed that this prophecy is very Distinctive. 
and it has two unique qualities. First of all, very often it uses second person pronouns, we, us. And we see this in chapter 53, verses one through six. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So who's speaking here? Well, obviously it's not God. Who's speaking are the very ones who crucified Christ. It is his beloved people of Israel. And so that's a unique feature of this prophecy. But there's a second unique feature beginning in Chapter 53, 53, verse 2, the Hebrew uses some unique verb forms which tell a story. And it's a verb form which is meant to carry the narrative and it's meant to say this is something that happened in the past. And so our English Bibles rightly translate those verbs in the past tense because the verb form is meant to convey a story that's already done, it's already finished, it's already happened. And so Isaiah 53 is very unique in that it's not so much a, a prophecy of the life and death, the atonement of Christ. It's much more a memoir. It's a diary of something that's already happened, and yet it's written 700 years before the fact. And so what has God done? He's planted in the ancient text of Isaiah a picture-perfect, theologically complete gospel proclaiming the account of Jesus Christ in the past tense for his people of Israel to read in the future. This is so unique and so beautiful. We also noticed in these verses that there's 15 of them and they're structured in mirror image form, meaning that the beginning and the ending mirror each other in themes and the middle is the crux, is the center, is the most important, is the highlight. And we saw the exaltation of Christ in the first three verses. Then we saw the humiliation of Christ in the next three verses, 53, 1 through 3, and then right in the middle, the crux, we just read these, these three verses, the propitiation of Christ in 53, 4 through 6, and then we go back to the humiliation of Christ, and then tonight, we'll revisit the exaltation of Christ, and that's where it ends. It ends where it began with Christ's exaltation. And so our text this evening, beginning in chapter 53, verse 10, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When the soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Well, tonight in Isaiah's continuing revelation of God's plan for Israel and the nations, 
I want to convince you to fully submit to Christ, what we began by talking about, because this text is so filled with reasons to fully submit to Christ. And we might even say this, there are reasons to fully submit to Christ so that you can make sure that your faith is genuine, that it's real, that it is authentic. So let's begin. First reason to fully submit to the exalted Christ, he is exalted in his submission. He's exalted in his submission. And every reason I give tonight will be a way that he's exalted. He's exalted in his submission. Verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. It was the will of the Lord. There's been a a plan of salvation from before the beginning. We had a clue to this when Ephesians 1 verse 4 says that all who would believe on the Lord Jesus Christ were chosen, eklegomai, it means selected before the foundation of the world. And, And this is key in that before the foundation of the world, it's a phrase that really means essentially in eternity past, Before the world was created, before sin entered into creation, God, fully knowing what would happen in the Garden of Eden and under his sovereign care, he had already made a plan to deal with a problem that didn't exist yet. That's phenomenal to think about this. The work of salvation is from the Father and would involve all three members of the Trinity. The Father decreed a plan to sovereignly and freely place his love on certain sinful individuals solely on the basis of his will, solely on the basis of his good pleasure. The Son of God, his job is to bridge the gap between holy God and unholy mankind, to take on all the weakness and the frailty of human nature, to live a perfect life, to die a perfect full payment death for sin, then to rise from the dead in total victory over death and sin on our behalf. And then the Holy Spirit, He would empower the human ministry of the Son of God. He would empower the preaching, the miracles, and he would empower the resurrection, which purchases our justification. And so you have this predetermined plan clearly seen in Scripture. Now, our covenant theology brothers, they call this plan the covenant of redemption. This is not named as such in Scripture, and and I wouldn't call it a covenant because a covenant is, in Scripture, involves a greater party making a deal of some sort with a lesser party, and we would never call the Lord Jesus a lesser party to God the Father. And in the Bible, a covenant is instituted with blood. It's begun with blood. This plan is never said to have been begun with blood. But there is a predetermined plan, and we would just simply call it part of the overall decree of God. We would not call it a covenant since the Bible doesn't name it as such. But Ephesians 3 verse 11 speaks of this plan as, quote, the eternal purpose that the Father has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's an eternal purpose. This was not God saying we need to gather together and make plan B because Adam and Eve really messed up. This was always the plan. The saints in Jerusalem pray to the Father as recorded in Acts 4, 27 and 28. They say this, For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan, listen to this, had predestined to take place. It's a pre-made plan. Jesus himself said in Luke 22, verse 22, that he goes to the cross as it has been determined. 2 Timothy 1, 9. God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus. When? Before the ages began. 
This has always been the plan. Peter preached in Acts 2.23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Listen, the foreknowledge of God is never passive. It is foreknowledge with a plan. Don't let anybody tell you, well, God just knew what's going to happen. That makes him not sovereign. And the Son of God took the brunt of the agony of this plan. He submitted to the Father's plan, empowered in his humanity by the Holy Spirit. And I would say it's safe to assume that no act of submission has ever surpassed Christ's. Nobody has ever submitted like he has. No wife submitting to her husband has gone through what Christ did. No child submitting to parents has been subjected to the level of agony of Christ. No slave or employee has ever been through as much as Christ gave up to submit to this plan. No church member has ever suffered like Christ by submitting to leadership. Listen, the worst we can lose in submission is our lives. That's the worst we can lose. Christ lost his life. He lost his revealed heavenly glory. He was treated as the enemy of God for our sake. That will never happen to you. It only happened to him. And so it's very easy and very right for the word of God to command us to submit to our authorities because it's simply the follow the lead of our submissive Savior. Let me give you a second reason to fully submit to the exalted Christ so that your faith can be confirmed as genuine. Second, he is exalted in his restitution. He's exalted in his restitution. Verse 10 continues, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, his soul makes an offering. Literally means his life is forfeit. His life makes an offering. Christ didn't just come to be a good person. He didn't just come to do penance. He didn't come to just die so we could live only. He came to die so that we could live forever with him, so that we could have the price for our sin paid for. Uh, This is a paradox. I don't know about you. I, I can't speak for you. I can speak for myself. That every time on this table here, which is set aside specifically to honor the Lord's table, that whenever we take the Lord's table, when we take communion together, there's a, there's a tension. There's a paradox. There's an irony here because we're remembering the death of Christ and we celebrate that and we mourn all at the same time. It's like trying to go to a wedding and a funeral simultaneously. It's a, it's a great paradox because the question that comes to my mind is, wasn't there any other way Couldn't God have paid for my sin in some other fashion? I mean, he has vast, endless power. Couldn't he decimate sin in some other way? Was the substitutionary death of Christ the only possible way of salvation? Couldn't have there been another way? Well, first of all, let's be clear. The atonement is not necessary at all. What do you mean, Pastor Steve? The atonement is not necessary. God is not obligated to save you. He makes no obligation except that which he puts upon himself. Think also of the fallen angels. How many fallen angels has he offered salvation to? None. He has made no way of salvation for them. So just to be clear, the atonement is not necessary. The atonement is a choice that God made. God could have simply abandoned sinful humanity and vindicated his holy righteousness and judged us. But he decreed that he would make a way for reconciliation. And the death of Christ wasn't just the actual pathway to salvation. It's the only 
possible pathway to salvation. Hebrews 2 verse 10 says, For it was fitting, meaning according to the nature of God, that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation, that's Christ, perfect through suffering. It was according to the nature of God. Hebrews 2 verse 17, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Another sacrifice wouldn't do it. Hebrews 10 verse 4 says, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Jesus himself, he said, this is the singular, the only way, the only path to salvation based in the love of the Father. He said in John 3 beginning in verse 14, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. And then you know how this ends. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Christ made restitution. And this is so phenomenal because you're the one who wrecked your life but Christ cleaned up your record. You're the one who ran from God like Jonah but Christ put you on the right path. You're the one who committed heinous capital crimes against God. Christ made restitution. He paid the price. He paid the penalty. He took the punishment. There's a third reason to fully submit to the exalted Christ so that your faith can be confirmed as genuine. He's exalted in his possession. He's exalted in his possession. Verse 10 continues, he shall see his offspring. He shall see his offspring. Oh, how the Lord Jesus suffered. He suffered mightily for you, but... He wasn't coming out of this deal empty-handed. He shall see his offspring. This is an imperfect verb, which means that something is continuing to happen over and over again. It's not just that the soldiers executing Jesus, that Jesus says just to them, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. It's not just those who personally met Jesus while he was alive on earth to whom he offers forgiveness. It's not just the Jews who believe in Christ. It's not just the Gentiles who believe in Christ. It is Adam and Eve and Abel and the line of Seth and Job and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the descendants of Israel who had a true saving eternal faith in God who forgives sin. It is the mystery king Melchizedek who believed in the one true holy God. It's all the Gentiles who have ever worshipped the true and living God. Gentiles like Rahab and Ruth. It is all those who came to faith by the preaching of the apostles. Then by the preaching of those whom the apostles trained and the next generation and the next and the next. It is all in this year who will profess faith in Christ. It is all who will profess faith in Christ after the church has been taken to heaven. It's all who will profess faith in Christ after Christ returns and reigns on earth for a thousand years. And it is comprehensive what Christ is doing to gain a possession for himself. Here's the decree of God as prophesied in Psalm 2, verse 8. This is the Father speaking to the Son. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Titus 2, 13 and 14 says that we're waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own, what? Possession. Who are zealous for good works. We're zealous to obey him because we belong to him. You are owned. You are not a partner with God. You are owned by God. You are the host of captives that Christ led forth according to Ephesians 4, 8. 
We're the prize. We're the prize. Countless millions upon millions of people who will worship and adore and obey and love and cherish and exalt Christ for all of eternity. Verse 6 says that we're the sheep who've gone astray. Now we're brought back as children. We're brought back as children of God. Now in this phrase, he shall see his offspring, we get a little hint of something. What is the hint here? Well, the rest of the chapter has been saying that whoever this servant is, he's going to die. How can he see his offspring if he's going to die? Well, we get this hint that the death of Christ is not the end. And then we get an Old Testament direct statement of the most marvelous victory ever. The fourth reason to fully submit to the exalted Christ so that your faith can be confirmed as genuine, he is exalted in his resurrection. He's exalted in his resurrection. Verse 10 continues, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall prolong his days. This is not the end. Mark chapter 5 records Jesus coming to the home of a synagogue leader. His little daughter had just died. And in the house, verse 38 says, Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when Jesus came into the house, he said, what are you, Why are you making a commotion and, and weeping? And the child is not dead, but sleeping. In the same way, after his own death, Mary Magdalene is seen at the tomb of Christ and she's weeping. Jesus appears behind her in such a way that she doesn't recognize him and she thought him to be the gardener and he asked her, woman, why are you weeping? And when Jesus revealed himself to her by simply saying, Mary, what did she do? She clung to him. She rejoiced that he was alive. In Psalm 2, verse 7, the Son of God is speaking and he tells of the decree of the Father. This is Christ speaking. I will tell of the decree the Lord has said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now what is that speaking of? Well, it can't be speaking of the Father bringing the Son into existence. The Son of God is pre-existent. He's always existed, so it can't be that. It might be speaking of the birth of Christ, but the, the context of Psalm 2 is a victorious conquering king, and so the idea of the birth of Christ kind of falls flat. Some feel that this is a coronation phrase, that this is Christ receiving all the crowns of the earth, and that makes sense in context, and there's a lot of merit to that. But when in doubt, find out what another biblical writer says it means. The New Testament tells us when Christ says that the Father has said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you, the New Testament tells us what this is speaking of. Acts 13, 32 and 33, and we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. What does Psalm 2 verse 7 speak of? It speaks of that glorious moment when God the Father raised the Son. The resurrection of Christ has accomplished so much for us. Let me just name a few things that the resurrection accomplished. It verified the deity of Christ. It verified his deity. Romans 1 verse 4, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. He was declared to be the Son of God. The resurrection proved that the atoning work of Christ was fully accepted. 
The atoning work of Christ was fully accepted. Payment in full was made. Romans 4.25 says that Christ was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Why is he raised? Because the payment is done. It's finished. The resurrection of Christ makes regeneration of the elect possible. Did you know that? You cannot be regenerate, regenerated without the resurrection. 1 Peter 1.3 says, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again, that's regeneration, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Why would God ever regenerate somebody when he can't resurrect them? And so therefore, the resurrection of Christ opens the way for regeneration. The resurrection of Christ gives us assurance that we won't perish in our sins. We're assured that we won't perish. 1 Corinthians fifteen seventeen. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. The resurrection motivates us to obedient living. Since Christ is already seated at the right hand of the Father where we're going to be. It motivates us. Ephesians 2, 5, and 6, that even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I don't know about you, but that motivates me. I want to live for Christ now, so that when I go see him, I, I have a life that was worth the gospel. The resurrection of Christ, you may not know this, but it established the first day of the week, Sunday, for worshiping Christ in local assemblies. Acts 20, verse 7, on the first day of the week, that's Sunday, when we gathered together to break bread, meaning to worship, Paul talked with them. 1 Corinthians 16, 2 speaks of taking a collection in the church on the first day of the week, on Sunday. And Revelation 1, verse 10, records John the Apostle worshiping on the Lord's day. This is the day that the Lord chose to visit him, to give him the revelation of Jesus Christ. Obviously, the resurrection of Christ also is the basis for our hope of future resurrection. It's the basis for our hope of future resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. What does it mean that he's the first fruits? He's the first human being to ever die, be raised from the dead, never to die again. And then one final benefit of the resurrection, and we could do many more, His resurrection is certification that Christ will judge the world. It's certification that Christ will judge the world. All those who put him to death and thought they were done with Jesus Christ, they're going to have a giant aha moment of eternity. Acts 17.31, Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. It's one thing for God to say, I've appointed a man judge the world it's another thing for him to raise him from the dead in order to do so now do you see what Isaiah meant when he said that the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand the resurrection is so so effectual so effective the resurrection is the death of death it's the beginning of life for all who would believe if I could put it this way God's redemptive plan will be wildly successful in the hands of Christ wildly successful Let me give you a fifth reason to fully submit to the exalted Christ. He's exalted in his affliction. He's exalted in his affliction. Verse 11 says, Out of the anguish of his soul, 
out of the anguish of his soul. Notice now that God the Father is speaking in verses 11 and 12. Just in Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12 are 15 verses. Listen to the anguish of Christ's soul. This is just in 15 verses. His body is marred beyond human semblance. He's unrecognizable as human. He's despised, rejected, man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Men are ashamed of him. He's despised again. He's not esteemed. He's not honored. He's borne our griefs. He's carried our sorrows. He's stricken, smitten, afflicted, pierced, crushed, chastised, wounded, oppressed, afflicted again, oppressed again, judged, cut off, stricken again, crushed again, put to grief. That's in 15 verses. You put all that together, what do you have? The anguish of his soul. But anguish doesn't just speak of pain. This is a word which means to toil, to exertion, to finish a task. It's to have the discipline to painstakingly see a work through the completion. You see, the Lord Jesus wasn't just passively waiting for anguish to happen. He was going towards it. He was going towards the cross. When Luke's gospel in Luke 9, 51 says that when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He was determined that nothing would get him off track. He was going to see his father's plan through. How obedient he was, how single-minded he was, how resolute he was. He's exalted in his affliction. Let me give you a sixth reason to fully submit to the exalted Christ so that your faith can be confirmed as genuine. He's exalted in his satisfaction. He's exalted in the satisfaction. Verse 11 continues, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. The price of the anguish of his soul, of leaving the glory of heaven to become a man in order to live, to minister, to suffer, to die and be raised, it will have been worth it. And I think we make a note to ourselves here. I think it's a good reminder that God, his saving you is not primarily about satisfying you. Your salvation is primarily about satisfying Christ. It's not primarily about giving Christ to you. It's primarily about giving you to Christ. That's what salvation is. It's about the fulfillment of all things in God's redemptive plan that Satan is defeated in his hold on mankind, that sin is defeated in its guilt-producing power, death is defeated in that it will be 100% extinguished. The curse will be defeated when through the work of Christ, God redeems all things, including creation. No more weeds, no more destruction, no more earth that's falling apart. Everything will be renewed. And when the Son of God is seated on His throne in the heavenly kingdom in New Jerusalem and He sees streaming in and out of the twelve gates of this massive city all of the perfected saints of all the ages bringing their treasures and their wares and their glory from all the nations of all the earth. An entire earth filled with nothing but peace and joy and worshipers of Christ. That is satisfaction. That is a job well done. There's a seventh reason to fully submit to the exalted Christ. He's exalted in his justification. He's exalted in his justification. Verse 11 continues, By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. Now, what is this knowledge that the righteous one possesses? Well, the knowledge that Christ has is precisely what God 
requires concerning sin, what has to be done about sin. Christ and Christ alone has that information and he brings that knowledge to us. And this is, I think, one of the clearest explanations of the doctrine of justification, not just in the Old Testament, but in all of the Bible. That you have no righteousness to offer God. All you have is sin. There's no good work you can do to undo a single sin. That's not possible. But Christ offers to put in place of your filthy life, his righteous life, so that you are, and I love this phrase, you're accounted righteous. You're accounted as sinless, as perfect, as holy, as ready for heaven. I mean, he's the righteous one who will credit you with his righteousness. That, there's, there's nothing like that. And maybe you've been in this situation, but imagine that you're in a car dealership to buy a car and you're in that horrible process of them checking your credit. They get you a cup of coffee like it's your last meal before execution. You're kind of sitting there wondering if you're going to be a worthy human being because if that number isn't high enough, you don't deserve to live, obviously. And the sales rep comes walking back with that well, you almost made it look on his face and you know, oh, here we go. And all of a sudden, right then, $90 billion Bill Gates walks up and he says to the sales rep, sign him up using my credit. Well, of course you're qualified now because Bill Gates can not only buy the car, he can buy the dealership, he can buy the company, he can buy the manufacturer, he can probably buy the state that you're buying this in. He has unlimited resources. Just getting that car is nothing for him. And this is exactly what the Apostle Paul was talking about in Ephesians 1, 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. And how is it that he can lavish riches on us? Because he has made us justified. He has said to God the Father, when you see Steve Swartz, when you see you and you and you and you see me. See Christ. That is lavish. Let me give you an eighth reason to fully submit to the exalted Christ. He's exalted in his recognition. He's exalted in his recognition. Verse 11 continues, and he shall bear their iniquities. Yes, Christ will make many to be counted righteous, but what about the sins they've committed? God cannot be just and just walk away from sin. He can't just undo it. And so God made Christ, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Isaiah says, he shall bear their iniquities. It's a word that means to carry, to support, to be loaded up with something. Christ takes your sin, he takes your shame, he takes your guilt, he unloads it from you and places it on his own back. God the Father places your sin, your shame, your guilt all on Christ. In other words, and this is, I'm almost ashamed to say it out loud, that Christ will be recognized as a sin bearer while you will be recognized as a righteousness bearer. It's almost too much to think about. I mean, how, how can you receive this? How can we let Christ be recognized as sinful as we are and stand as it were, in his place as being perfect as Christ is, we can't possibly accept that except for one thing. We don't have a choice. There is no other way. There are no other options. 
And so with joy and humble thankfulness, we watch Christ go to our cross to die in our place. There's a ninth reason to fully submit to the exalted Christ so that your faith can be confirmed as genuine. He's exalted in his compensation. He's exalted in his compensation. Verse 12 says, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. God the Father is speaking because of the faithfulness of Christ to the plan of redemption. Something is going to happen to the servant. Now on the surface here, it appears that Christ is simply going to kind of divvy up. He's going to divide his prize with others. That's not, however, the idea of Christ getting a portion of the spoil, a portion of the rewards. That's not the idea that's being conveyed here. This is the idea of Christ receiving all the reward, the reward being a people. In fact, this phrase can be rendered like this. I will apportion to him the many and the strong he will apportion as spoil. In other words, the servant has received all that he died to save. He won't miss one. Jesus knew that this would be the outcome of his obedience. John six thirty nine, And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. This is, by the way, why we believe in limited or particular atonement. Because Christ said, I will receive those that I died to save. That's who he receives. And Jesus will, in the act of resurrecting all the saved, will literally resurrect for himself an entire kingdom. The kingdom made up of those formerly dead in trespasses and sins, made up of those who formerly were enemies of God, those who had been chosen before the foundation of the world. There's a little verse in Ephesians 3 that is marvelous, and I think it makes sense in this context. Ephesians 3, verse 10 says that the angels, spoken of as the rulers and the authorities in heavenly places, the angels are shown the manifold wisdom of God through the church, in that the Lord Jesus Christ will take people who formerly hated him, raise them up spiritually to new life, then raise them up physically to new life, such that he has a kingdom for himself and all the mouths of all the angels will drop in astonishment at the wisdom of God. And you, you dear precious brothers and sisters, you are the prize for which Christ died. You're the prize. And here's the irony. You weren't worth dying for until he died for you to make you worth dying for. You are the compensation to Christ. You are his reward. Let me give you a tenth reason to fully submit to the exalted Christ. He's exalted in his identification. He's exalted in his identification. Verse 12 continues, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Poured out, this is a Hebrew verb form that is causative. It means that the servant caused his life to end. This is a voluntary choice. Jesus confirmed this in John 10, 18. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. But I want to focus for a moment on this second phrase in verse 12. He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors because that's vital to the gospel. It's vital to our understanding of what Jesus went through for our sake. When it says he was numbered, this is a verb form that is passive. The subject isn't doing something. 
And it's a subcategory of this form called a tolerative. And you don't have to remember any of that. Just remember this, that, that something is being allowed to happen. That the subject is allowing something to happen to himself. He's tolerating something. What was it that Christ allowed? Well, we've already seen that during his trials, he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. He offered no defense. He made no attempt to exonerate himself. But Jesus allowed himself not only to lose his life, he allowed himself to lose his good name. He allowed himself to be considered by any onlooker as a massive disappointment and to be considered, as the text says, a transgressor. This is a participle in Hebrew, meaning that he was numbered with the transgressing, with those who continually sin, those who continually rebel against God, those who were engaged in criminal behavior. That's who he allowed himself to be seen as. Now, Jesus fully knew that he would be crucified between two criminals. He fully knew that the chief priests and the Pharisees were trying to make him appear guilty. One little problem, though. Jesus had never been guilty of anything in his life. He's never sinned. And so getting a guilty verdict is going to be a challenge. He's totally innocent. He's totally sinless. He's totally spotless. How are we going to get this guilty verdict To be crucified with criminals, he would have to appear as a criminal. He would have to appear as a rebel. When Jesus and the disciples were about to leave the upper room after the Last Supper to go to the Garden of Gethsemane, Luke 22 records a a very unusual exchange between Jesus and his disciples, and it, it must have made them scratch their heads a little bit. Luke 22, 35, he said to them, When I sent you out, and and he's speaking of preaching tours that he sent them on. When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said, nothing. Now you might think that Jesus is about to give them a lesson on trusting the Lord, lessons in having faith, but he's not. What he's about to say is, well, there was a time for leaving all your things behind and trust me for everything. Right now is not that time. Now is a different time because he goes on to say, but now let the one who has a money bag, a bag for carrying money and likewise a knapsack or any sort of bag for carrying things and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. What's he saying? Get your bags of money, make them obvious. Get your knapsacks, your bags, fill them with stuff. And if you don't have one, buy a sword. Now, let me ask you a question. If in the middle of the night, in downtown of anywhere USA, you saw a dozen men, some jingling money bags, some, some carrying heavy bags filled with things, and others carrying weapons, what would you think? You would think you had just come across a gangster, a, a group of gangsters. And they're quickly making their way out of, their, out of the city. What do you think people thought? They're up to something you would think that this was a band of criminals. Why is Jesus setting this up? He goes on to say in Luke 22, 37, for I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me, quote, and he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. By the way, that's the only place in all the gospels where Isaiah 53 is quoted verbatim. And what the Holy Spirit deemed the most important thing to quote, that Jesus would allow himself to be numbered with, allow himself to appear as a criminal. 
But what he's doing is really just kind of a stage prop, so to speak. It's enough to confirm to those arresting him that maybe he needs to be arrested. Luke twenty-two thirty-eight, and they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said, ah, that's enough. It's a stage prop. It, it'll do. It's enough to get Jesus in the hot water he needs to to get arrested. As a matter of fact, even though Jesus had just quoted Isaiah 53, he had just told the disciples what he was doing. He just told them what this was about so he could appear as a criminal. Peter misunderstood it and thought with two swords, we're going to start a war. And so he took one of those swords and tried to use it. And as we saw last time, that fell flat and didn't go anywhere. So Jesus identified as a criminal. If I could put it as another way, he identified as you, as a lawbreaker, as how God views you. If I could be even more personal, Jesus had to look as horrible as you are so that you could look as perfect as he is. He identified with you so that you could identify with him. This is the identification with Christ that Paul was speaking of in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Is there another time Jesus identified with you? How about his baptism? He identified with you when he was baptized by John the Baptist. John the Baptist had been baptizing the sinful, repentant, sinner after sinner after sinner after sinner to prepare the way for the coming of the Son of God in the Jordan River. And and here comes Jesus. He's just another guy in line acting like someone who needs to repent. And John protested. He said, we need to switch places. I need to be baptized by you. But Jesus insisted and he humbled himself to be baptized in front of all the others so that he would identify with the sinners. And when we're baptized, then we identify ourselves with Christ. We're buried with him in his death and we're raised with him in his resurrection. And when we're saved, the Holy Spirit descends on us like the Holy Spirit descended on Christ at his baptism. He identified with you so that you would have the privilege of identifying with him. Let me give you the 11th reason to fully submit to the exalted Christ. He's exalted in his deflection. He's exalted in his deflection. Verse 12 continues, yet he bore the sin of many. This is a key word here, this conjunction, yet. He was identified as a transgressor, yet what was actually happening was that Jesus bore, it means to carry, to lift up the sin of transgressors. Now this must be important because God has repeated himself almost immediately. Verse 11, he shall bear their iniquities. This is a verb meaning in the present and on into the future. All that are his will have their sins forgiven. And then verse 12, he bore the sin of many. It's a perfect verb, meaning that the the action is completed. It's done. It's finished. Not only did Jesus take the guilt, the blame, the reproach, he took the consequences. Psalm 7 verse 12 speaks of an unrepentant man that the bow of God is loaded with the arrow of judgment. It's bent and it's shaking and it's ready to fire at any moment. It's like Jeremiah said in Lamentations 3, 12, that God, quote, bent his bow and set me as the target for his arrow. And the bow creaks with anticipation of 
burying the judgment of God in your soul, into your life of you standing before the judgment throne and rightly being condemned and bodily cast into the lake of fire for all eternity. And as the arrow is released, God lets go because in his justice, he will not hold back his justice. He will not hold back his wrath. His wrath will be satisfied. He will pour his fury. He will pour his anger. He will pour his righteous indignation on someone. And the arrow is flying right towards you. And just as it comes towards you, the just judgment of God for your rebellion and sin, the Lord Jesus Christ steps in front. And he not only deflects the arrow of God's wrath, but he takes it in himself so that the satisfaction of God's wrath is complete and yet you walk out unscathed. And by the way, when did Jesus do this? Romans 5.10 says that he did it while you were still God's enemy. He did that for you. He deflected the judgment of God away from you and into himself. And let me give you a 12th reason to fully submit to the exalted Christ so that your faith can be confirmed as genuine. He is exalted in his ascension. He is exalted in his ascension. Verse 12 finishes and makes intercession for the transgressors. Jesus ascended into heaven in the full view of his disciples, marking the first time in history, by the way, that a resurrected human being has entered into heaven. And what is he doing there? Romans 8, 34 says, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? This was the end of Christ's self-limitation. This was his return to glory. This was the beginning of Christ's new ministry of interceding, of being an advocate. This was marking the time when Jesus would now send the Holy Spirit to all who would believe in him. It marked the time that Jesus would give the gifts of men, of apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers to lead and instruct the church. It marked the time when he would prepare our future home. And his ascension anticipated his return. What did the angels tell the disciples? They said, why are you looking up into the sky? That this Jesus same way he went he's coming back the same way and incidentally according to the book of Zechariah he's going to return to the same spot from which he ascended now let me ask you a question if Christ is exalted in his submission his restitution his possession his resurrection his affliction his satisfaction his justification his recognition his compensation his identification his deflection and his ascension, if that's not enough to make you fully submit to Christ, I have nothing else to offer you. I have nothing else to say. And if that's not enough to make you submit, you have no confidence that your faith is genuine. No confidence. If you don't believe Christ is Lord enough to submit to his commands, then you will find yourselves among those who cry out, Lord, Lord, did we not do such and such in your name? Franz Delich, the 19th century commentator, wrote on Isaiah, probably still to this day the finest commentary on Isaiah ever written. He said, The servant of Jehovah goes through shame to glory, through death to life. He conquers when he yields. He rules after being enslaved. He lives after he has died. He completes his work after he himself has been apparently cut off. His glory streams upon the dark ground 
of the deepest humiliation. There's great irony here that Christ had to suffer so that he might be exalted. He had to suffer so that you might be exalted. And could I warn you, could I exhort you to beware of a Christianity that focuses on my experience and my feelings and my life supported by God as if God exists solely for me? Can I ask you to beware of that? Christ is worthy of obeying him fully and completely. We don't get to judge whether the commands of Christ apply to us. He has well earned our total allegiance. If you love him, obey him. If you don't, don't. But the Lord Jesus Christ in all his exalted glory leaves no middle ground. There is no middle ground. I, for one, would love to exalt him and to love him and obey him. And I hope that that is your call as well. Our Father, we thank you for this text, which has been probably poorly represented. But Lord, we have here this glorious picture of our exalted Savior in language that is so densely packed that we literally just had to go through it word by word. Lord, it's my prayer for every true believer who is hearing this message that the glory of the exalted Christ would be motivation to obey in every little area, to obey Ephesians 4 that tells us to stop being bitter and to forgive and to put away anger, to obey Ephesians 5 that tells husbands to love their wives and wives to submit to their husbands, to obey Ephesians 6 which tells children to obey their parents and slaves to obey their masters, to obey Titus chapter 2 which says to preach those things that are in accordance with sound doctrine, to obey as women of God, to obey as men of God, to obey as children of God, to do all that we could do to simply submit ourselves to Christ because he has well earned our loyalty. He has well earned our allegiance. And Lord, for any hearing this who perhaps don't know Christ, I pray that this would convince them that there is no greater God to whom they can turn. There is no greater Savior to whom they can apply. There is only Christ. He alone is the exalted Savior. And he rightly said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. And so my prayer is that the exalted Christ through the Holy Spirit, would draw the lost to himself. We pray these things for Christ's sake.